Welcome to Record Roulette. My name is Eamon O'Flynn, and this is a Record Roulette 101. Our next full-length episode features journalist, author, and screenwriter Chris Jones as our guest. You may know Chris as CBC's correspondent at the most recent Men's World Cup in Qatar. You may know him from his decades as a writer and editor at the National Post and Esquire. You may know him as the author of books like The Eye Test, A Case for Human Creativity in the Age of Analytics. Or you may know him as the guy who told a viral Twitter story that concluded with a bunch of scuba bros urinating on another scuba bro after he was stung by a jellyfish. The man contains multitudes. The album Chris Chose, as you may have guessed based on the name of this episode, is 10 by Pearl Jam. In the next 5 to 10 minutes, I'm going to tell you everything you need to know about the band and album before listening to our full chat with Chris, with two caveats. First, you should still listen to the album, obviously. Second, this isn't exhaustive. This is just what you need to know. Let's start with the band, since it's conceivable that if you're very young, very old, not interested in rock music, or living under a rock, you haven't heard of Pearl Jam. Formed in 1990 from the remnants of an earlier band called Mother Love Bone, Pearl Jam went on to become one of the most influential bands of the 1990s. They're considered a key cog in the grunge movement of the early 90s, which surprised me since I'd always thought of them more as a rock or alternative rock band. As part of their grunginess, they often shunned popular music industry practices like making music videos. Despite their grunginess, they're a massive commercial success having sold more than 85 million albums worldwide. That makes them one of the best-selling bands of all time. They also outperformed their contemporaries. For example, while Nirvana's Nevermind is credited with bringing grunge to the mainstream, the album we're talking about today, which came out a month before Nevermind, has outsold it. They were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2017, which was their first year of eligibility. They're also considered one of the greatest live acts of all time and their fandom has been described as a cult-like following akin to the Grateful Deads. Now, for today's album. 10 is Pearl Jam's debut album. It was released in August 1991, and it makes the Rolling Stone 500 Greatest Albums list at number 160, which puts it among albums from Oasis, Springsteen, Johnny Cash, and Steely Dan. Despite its reputation as the quintessential grunge album, Ten is often noted for displaying its strong classic rock influence on songs like Alive, Even Flow, and Jeremy, all of which were radio beasts throughout the 1990s. Unlike some of the rough edge and simply arranged music coming from the grunge genre, reviewers like Steve Huey at AllMusic have highlighted the intricately arranged guitar textures across the album. One really interesting thing about the album is that it started coming together before the band was even formed. Guitarists Stone Gossard and Mike McCready, along with bassist Jeff Ament and a rotating cast of sit-in drummers, recorded some demos with no vocals. Eddie Vedder, in San Diego, got his hands on the demos and independently wrote lyrics and recorded vocals for songs that become Once and Alive. Gossard and Ammon heard Better's versions, invited him to audition with them in Seattle, and in the process, they wrote 11 songs together, many of which would become the list for 10. So this isn't a band that grew through touring, building a following, etc., and this helps to explain why they're a bit slow to take off. The recording of the album was pretty quick, about a month in total. The group apparently wasn't super happy with the amount of reverb on the mix, and to this day, Eddie Vedder says he can't listen to it. 
Before taking the name Pearl Jam, the, the group called themselves Mookie Blaylock after the basketball player. They were asked to change the name because of intellectual property and naming rights concerns, especially after Blaylock signed an endorsement deal with Nike. The group's original name, though, was honored in the name of their debut album. Ten was Blaylock's number. As mentioned, the album was released a month before Nirvana's Nevermind, but unlike Nevermind, it didn't find immediate success. It took nearly a year to achieve gold certification and didn't break into the top 10 of the Billboard 200 until May 1992. It eventually hit the number two spot for four weeks, but it was held out of the top spot by a Billy Ray Cyrus album. In total, it spent 264 weeks on the Billboard chart on its way to selling 13 million copies in the United States alone. One crazy fact, 10 was the eighth best-selling album in 1993, which means it outsold their brand new follow-up, Verses, that year. Three songs, the aforementioned Alive, Even Flow, and Jeremy, all became singles that reached the top 20 of Billboard's mainstream rock chart. The song Black wasn't released as a single, but still landed at number three on the mainstream rock chart. Jeremy was nominated for multiple Grammys, and its music video won four MTV music, uh, Video Music Awards. Critical reception was a bit mixed. Alan Jones at Melody Maker credited Vedder's uh, vocals as giving the album a uniquely compelling focus, and a review at Q noted that it, quote, may well be the face of 90s metal. Don Kay at Kerrang, a publication I've never heard of, said it was, quote, introspective and charged with a quiet emotional force. But others weren't so kind. David Brown at Entertainment Weekly suggested it was mostly indistinguishable from the efforts of Soundgarden and Alice in Chains. That was a common theme, uh, that this was somehow lesser than its contemporaries. And speaking of contemporaries, Kurt Cobain also attacked the album, calling Pearl Jam commercial sellouts and arguing that 10 wasn't a true alternative album because it had too many guitar leads. Retrospective reviews and appraisals have been much kinder than Mr. Cobain. The aforementioned Steve Huey from All Music, for example, called it a, quote, flawlessly crafted hard rock masterpiece in 2012. It's on the Rolling Stone 500 Greatest Albums list, obviously, and has been there for each iteration. In fact, it has moved up from number 207 in 2003 to where it is now, 160 in 2020. Readers of Q voted it the 42nd greatest album ever. VH1 had it at number 83 on their list of the 100 greatest rock and roll albums. NME had it at number 66 on their list of the 100 greatest albums of all time. And in 2021, the album was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. So plenty of people think it's great. Why did Rolling Stone include it? Well, here's their write-up. I quote, more than any of the Northwest bands that preceded them, Pearl Jam turned into rock's dominant new sound. Their first album includes stories about homelessness, even flow, murder, once, execution, footsteps, incest, alive, psychiatric hospitals, why go, and romantic disappointment, black. Most notoriously, Jeremy told the story of a high school kid who takes revenge on his bullies by killing himself in class. Though the lyrics don't make that clear, the accompanying video did. Pearl Jam committed themselves to songs of darkness and trouble, especially in adolescent life, and Eddie Vedder delivers them with conviction, in a voice that makes you feel like the events are happening right now in front of you. It seems like a big claim to say Pearl Jam turned into rock's dominant new sound, but that belief certainly would rationalize having 10 on the list at number 160. With all of this in mind, when I tackle this album alongside Nathan and Chris, I'll be listening for a few things. First, 
I'll be giving an awful lot of thought to Vetter's vocals since they seem so unique. I think I'll take a listen to a few of the other grunge albums in this area as well to see whether I agree with Kurt Cobain about this being something other than grunge. Finally, Rolling Stone spends a lot of time talking about the stories, the importance of the writing in making this album so impactful. I'll read the lyrics, but I'm also going to have to decide whether I have any idea what Vetter is actually saying in his performance. I'm looking forward to a great chat about one of history's greatest albums. Take a listen and tune in for a discussion with Chris Jones. That's all for today. Check out Record Roulette on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at RR Music Pod. Rate and review this podcast wherever you can. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite show. Or listen for free at recordroulettepodcast.com. Music in this episode is from Lemon Music Studio. Thank you for listening to Record Roulette. Until the next spin, goodbye.